Well, uh, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis, uh, sort of weekly, not really, kind of bi-weekly, but also somewhat not really podcast about gaming, television, film, all kinds of stuff. I'm Kyle Diaz. I'm Ryan Harrington. And our favorite today is favorite comedian. And we've talked about my favorite comedian before on the podcast, so it's probably going to be a rehash of something that we did like a year ago. But um, Ryan, who's who's your pick? What 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 are you going to talk about? Um, my pick is uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, he's probably one of the biggest names in comedy. But uh, I grew up watching the show. Um. One of the first books I think I ever purchased with my own money was his uh, book Sign Language, which mm-hmm. is just basically a collection of some of his stand-up material. And um, I have had his stand-up album, I'm telling you for the last time, uh, in my CD player. Um, and I listened to it almost every night for like a year straight. Um, I don't know. Um his form of comedy, I think, really influenced how uh, uh, how I looked at life and how I grew up. I really can't remember a time growing up when I didn't watch Seinfeld, which is really weird since, you know, I was like five when it was airing. I think it's interesting because, you know, his, his the, the sitcom was obviously so incredibly wildly popular um that i think it kind of overshadowed the fact that he was around for like a good 15 years before that you know he was performing on letterman he was doing specials and stuff like that and 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 was really one of the better known stand-up comics of like that whole generation with eddie murphy and sam kennison and all those other guys in the 80s um i think sometimes his his stand-up like chops kind of get overshadowed by the fact that he had this show and then because the show made his style so popular and everybody started like imitating him you know with you know what is the deal with like insert blank there but um kind of overshadowed just how amazingly good it is the most amazing thing that happens to you on a night like this is the ride that you have in the cab you know, isn't it incredible the chances that these guys take with your life and that you're so calm in the back seat, you know, because they got that glass partition, and you're just watching them. It's like it's happening on television, you know. He's, you know, he's flying around the road, and you're going, boy, that looked dangerous. You know, the dumbest thing of all you can think in a New York taxi cab is, well, the man knows what he's doing. Have you ever thought that? He's a professional cab driver. He's got a cab driver's license. I can see it right there. I don't even know what it takes to get a cab driver's license. I think all you need is a face. I mean, I mean, he was a big name in the 80s, but Seinfeld was pretty much the 90s. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you go back and you listen to some of those old bits and you can see him really kind of like honing his craft and it's just... Oh, absolutely. This is really fascinating to me. Uh, have you been watching his web series, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? Uh, no, I have not. Um, I I really have not seen much of what he's done post-B-movie. Well, you should check out Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It's um, it's exactly what it sounds like, and sometimes it's kind of boring, especially with the people that I don't know. Like, I don't know really who... 
Like I'm looking at the list of guests here, and like I don't really know who Barry Martyr is or Bob Einstein. Uh, so like I don't uh, those episodes didn't like resonate as well with me. But there's a couple really great episodes. Uh, there's an episode with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, who were obviously Oop. like comedy legends from way back in the day and they're like super old men now they're both like 85 and they hang out together every single day <laughs> like at Mel Brooks's house and so Jerry Seinfeld just goes and hang, hangs out with the two of them at their house and it's really adorable and hilarious um, and then Ooh, there's also there's a, one with Joel Hodgson there's a really interesting one with Michael Richards where I don't know it's like kind of Michael Richards they they talk about his troubles and stuff like that and, and, and you know I, it doesn't really make me feel too much more sympathy for him because I think that that guy you know displayed a really ugly side of himself in public that probably pretty much destroyed his public reputation forever yeah um, but it's really interesting to see them kind of try to work through that together and it's really it's like a little bit painful to watch Jerry Seinfeld because obviously for decades Jay Seinfeld and Michael Richards were like good friends and then he had to deal with the fact that his good friend had done this like horrible thing and I don't know it's interesting it's a it's a very good little web series that doesn't really aspire to be anything more than it is you know it's not like Louie it doesn't have like a you know it's it's a it's a very simple concept and it's basically explained by the title but it's very entertaining anyway okay but Jay Seinfeld's a really good pick um my pick is Louis C.K. Um, and, you know, I don't think he's necessarily best, but he definitely fits my definition of favorite. Um, we talked about him back in episode, like, 14 or something. Um, but only in context of his TV series, Louis. We didn't talk too much, I think, about his stand-up. Right. Um, I mean, he's... he's almost absurdly popular today he's done this whole thing where he has gone independent and is selling his own uh specials and and tickets and stuff like that through his own thing and he's totally self-supporting like you know he sells five million copies of his special within a week of of releasing it on his own which is something that almost no stand-up comedians can do um right what I think is interesting about Louis is that uh, I was watching, and an, an I see from the show notes that I talked about this last time, but it's just so good that I rewatch it every couple months. Uh, there's a there's a special that aired on HBO called Talking Funny, and it's uh, a 45 minute conversation with Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, and Louis C.K. And they just sit around in this studio and they talk about their approach to comedy, how they do comedy. Um, and and just kind of compare their different styles and stuff like that. And one of the things that Jerry Seinfeld said that I thought was really interesting is he said that he never found it hard. The first time he ever went up on stage as a stand-up, he bombed and he felt hard, but then he said from the second time onward, he was like, once I saw that I could do it, that I could get up on stage and at least get a laugh, like he never really struggled with it ever again, he said. So he's like the the kind of prodigal talent, I guess. And, and yeah. in, in my mind, Louis C.K. is like kind of the opposite. So Louis C.K. was around for a long time. Yeah. And he bounced around from thing to thing to thing. He did some stand-up that really wasn't very funny. If you go and look at, at old Louis C.K. stand-ups from, you know, the early 90s, late, late 80s, early 90s, you see that he's doing this kind of absurdist comedy um, it, it it's like it's like kind of kind of Mitch Hedbergian, but nowhere near as funny as Mitch Hedberg. 
uh, was able to make it, because uh, I think because Louis was even then like a little too angry for it. Louis C.K. And then, you know, he was a writer for uh, the Conan O'Brien show back in the day. He was a writer for, uh, what was the name? Whose show was it? The Dana Carvey show that was just oh, a yeah. huge flop. And then he wrote Pootie Tang, which is a weird movie that shouldn't exist but somehow does. Um, he, had his own, he had his first show. Yeah, his first show, which was canceled by HBO, but I feel like his first show was like just uh, just him starting. Lucky Louie was like just him starting to come into the comedic persona that he would really start to hone with. Um, really, I think he starts to come into his own with Shameless and Chewed Up. Those are in 2007 and 2008. Um, and he kind of throws his former comedic persona like out the window. Um, and instead he talks about his own life, he talks about his kids, uh, he talks about, uh, race, he talks about all kinds of stuff that he never really touched on in his old kind of humor. Um, and I don't really know why, you know, I I don't, I haven't, I haven't, I've listened and read a lot of stuff with him about, um, you know, where his comedy comes from and stuff, but I don't really know why at age like 40 he had this kind of just incredible run of 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 comedy but basically starting with chewed up then he, uh, he had shameless chewed up hilarious and then live at the beacon theater which i think are four comedy albums where there literally isn't a f- an unfunny joke um and i don't know he's just he's he's super hard working he does this thing he he talks about it in talking funny where he throws away all of his material at the end of every year he like gets to the end. Of, he gets to the end of the year, and he's just like, "Well, that's it. Like, I'm tearing up all my note cards from this year, and I got to write a whole nother special." And I think that that work ethic is really where this popped out of. I think he just kept trying for so incredibly long, and what it's made him is like this very polished master at how to do stand up, how to uh, craft a joke, joke in such a way that it lands perfectly, and that it you know it, it works on multiple levels and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's really about when he started to get like vastly more recognition too. Um, it's kind of in that 2007, 2008 time period. Um, Absolutely. So he's just, he's just really funny and he tells jokes that I can't remember anyone else that, that I can't imagine anyone else getting away with uh, about uh, <laughs> gender and masturbation and race and rape and like all kinds of things that, um, he doesn't approach them in a crass way. He doesn't... Well, maybe his masturbation jokes are pretty crass. Um, but uh, he manages to tell them in such a way that it that it makes you laugh, but it also is just really smart. And I just... I don't know. I, f- I find him very, very fascinating. I find his TV show, Louis, very fascinating, which, uh, you know, obviously has a lot of his stand-up mixed in in the same way that, that Jerry Seinfeld... Uh, that Seinfeld did. Um... I don't know. He's just, he's kind of like the master at this point. And what I think is really interesting about him is he had to work for so long and be so bad for so long before he could finally, uh, finally get to that point. So. Right. I think, I think there's something 
very honest about about him. Mm-hmm. That comes through in his stand up. Mm-hmm. I think that's and, true. Like it's like he wears his heart on his sleeve almost. Yeah. Yeah, and he it's like he's letting you into like a part of his mind that most people keep private. You know, he's he's telling you things that m- most people would never tell you. Exactly. About how he about how he actually, you know, sometimes hates his kids or about how you know, he he has these kind of inappropriate thoughts sometimes and stuff like that, but I don't know. It just it's just so funny. I just want to say I'm not trying to say that if you're white you can't complain. Right. I'm just saying that if you're black you get to complain more. Right. Right. Because <laughs> you can't take people's like historical context away from them. And right. everybody wants us to. Like white people are always like, "Come on." It wasn't us. Like, they want black people to forget everything. Like, every year, white people add 100 years to how long ago slavery was. I've heard educated white people say slavery was 400 years ago. No, it very wasn't. It was 140 years ago. That's two 70-year-old ladies living and dying back to back. That's how recently you could buy a guy. You gotta remember that if you meet a black person, they have gray hair, they remember a time they weren't allowed to use a certain toilet. So give them a little, you know, time to be cranky. And by the way, white people have our own thing that we, yeah. stuff that we went sure, through. Sure, sure. That, that hurt us that we have to cope with. Like when they took our slaves away. That was really <laughs> hard for us. And we're still, so it's pretty even. And he, he has interesting ideas about stand-up. He's very, very thoughtful about stand-up in a way that I think not a lot of people are. Um... He has this bit in the beginning of Live at the Beacon Theater where he's talking about um, he's talking about uh, like uh, the, the, he he walks out on stage and he's like, "There's no opening act. I'm doing all the announcements and shit. So just sit down and, and let me talk." And he's like, "You know, please turn off your cell phones because if you get your cell phone on and you're like texting somebody, then I look out at the audience and I see just like a sea of darkness and then like your big dumb face." like, lit up by your cell phone, and then he says, this is a rhetorical performance, and, like, I'm the one who's talking, and you're the one who's listening. And I think that's really interesting, because I'm not sure that very many comedians would re- describe what they do as a rhetorical performance. Like, he's saying, he's, I think, I think he approaches it more like a, like a monologue or, than, a, than a traditional stand-up comedy, and he doesn't mind lying or stretching the truth or telling you something happened yesterday when it really happened five years ago, like, it's a performance. He's not... I don't know. He's very thoughtful about it. Do you think it's safe to say that Louis C.K. is the biggest name in comedy right now? I think it's safe to say that he's the biggest name in comedy among people who like comedy. Okay. I think Dane Cook is probably a bigger name among just, like, the general population. And... Then I mean, there's always there's all the huge stand-up comedians turned to actors that people still know just because of name recognition, you know. So like, if you pulled people, more people would have heard of uh, Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy than Louis C.K. Okay. Um, but I think Dan uh, Cook is probably bigger among people who would not describe themselves as fans of stand-up comedy. But I think if you were to look only at people who care about stand-up comedy, he's definitely the biggest name. I do think it's safe to say, though, that he's revolutionized uh, the distri- at least the distribution of stand-up comedy with his, yeah. like, you know, 
completely his self uh published not it's not self published but self distributed i guess yeah self distributed like i noticed uh, that aziz ansari is uh has started ha- put has out done his that most same model um, um jim gaffigan did the same thing mm. um there are a couple others well and louis ck through his system put out a set by a comic named Tignataro um, right that she recorded right after she was diagnosed with well not not after she was diagnosed oh maybe it was right after she was diagnosed with breast cancer um and that is one of the most incredible sets of stand up uh i've ever heard and i think it's interesting because it's louis ck leveraging his fan base to say hey you need to go listen to this because it's raw and it's vital and it's incredibly funny and incredibly touching and you know i would never would have heard of that set I never would have heard that said if if it wasn't if I hadn't been on his mailing list. So I thought that was kind of cool. Let's talk about Community next. Okay. Okay. Cool. So Community just came back for season four, the long-awaited season four that was supposed to premiere back in October, but then was pushed back all the way through till February. Um, and I remember when you know Community's future was very uncertain back in the season two, season three days, and there was this big fan-mounted campaign. People like wrote letters and stuff like that to the creators. I, I mean, to the uh, Not to... <laughs> the studio. Um, and then the news came out that Dan Harmon fired slash got quit. I mean, uh, got fired slash quit slash left the show under not very good terms. And at, at that moment, like, when that news came out was when I think, like, it really sunk in for a lot of people that, like, oh, like, there might be something worse than community just going off the air. Right. And, like, that something worse could be this, like, zombie of a show where they keep the characters in the setting, but they fire all the creative people, and then we're left with this kind of zombie-ish thing. That been, just yeah, reminds, cannibalized into yeah r- reminds us of what we used to have. So I think that's what everyone was like a little bit afraid of coming up to this uh, this uh, season four opening. Um, especially since it's not like it's been like all like uh, rumors of you know loyalty and happiness on the set since then. I mean there was like a big freak out with Chevy Chase. Um, he left the show also under not very good terms, although he's still in these couple of episodes, so I'm not sure how much he filmed before they got rid of him or, or how they're going to deal with that. Um, right. I think, I feel like I heard that he filmed almost the whole season four. I think that makes sense with the timeline, too. You, especially if you think about the fact that they were going to premiere back in October, and they were probably shooting this stuff, you know, spring and over the summer. So... um so that that kind of makes sense. I also heard a couple of weeks ago that, and this is not a problem yet because uh, she she wrote a lot of episodes this season, I think. But Megan Gans, who was one of the writers, went who she wrote a lot of the very funniest community episodes from past seasons. And when Dan Harmon left, everyone was like, "Oh, Dan Harmon's leaving." Oh no! But like, at least Megan Gans is still there. But she also left the show recently. Uh, to go. Well, they had already wrapped for season four by then. Yeah, exactly. But it just didn't... It wasn't a very good omen in my mind. Like, when I read that, I was like, if this show is still firing at the level that it was when 
Dan Harmon was there, like I feel like she would not have left. But the fact that she went to go write for Modern Family after season four of Community had wrapped, like that didn't make me feel gr- very great about this episode. I mean, about this season either. Um, um just all this baggage that people are coming to season four of this yeah. show with. Um, I mean, I, I still have uh, optimism about season four. I, I took that more though as a sign that. Chances are uh, for season five looking less and less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let, let's ask. You, we've we've watched the first two episodes of season four, so that w- those episodes aired like February. I don't know, like February eighth and February sixteenth or something like that. Um, so, w- what did you think of of these two episodes? They're fine. Um, I thought the the Halloween episode was a lot stronger than the uh, season opener. Me too. Uh, after the season opener, I was like concerned. You know, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like these, this does these don't seem like the characters I know. The jokes aren't landing very well. Like it, it felt it felt a little. It did feel a little out of place. Yeah. It. it and it, I mean, well, and to a certain degree, obviously, it was. I think. Well, not within certain plot lines were supposed to be. Yeah, but yeah, everything. But the, I don't know. The Halloween episode was much better. It it, it wasn't up to its normal standards, but it was much better. True, and which is kind of unfortunate since uh, its ratings just took a hit from being Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then there was also the oddity of airing a Halloween episode on Valentine's Day, which yeah. totally wasn't their fault because their schedule got messed up, but it was just kinda of, when it when it came on I was like, oh really? Like a Halloween episode? That's where we're that's what we're we're doing now. Um the and I, I think I think the promos leading up to it were kind of a misstep. hmm I didn't see um, them. Oh. Because like they made it sound like it was on purpose. Like they were doing Halloween for Valentine's Day. It was uh, like I don't I don't remember how the commercial goes. It's like Halloween in February only the people at community would be crazy enough to do that. <laughs> and I mean, in a way, they're right because like out of shows on TV, I think Community is one of the only ones that would try and get away with that. Yeah, but it just made it sound like. It was a shtick. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I, I forget who I was reading. It was a, it was one of the one of the TV writers who I like a lot. Um, maybe it was maybe it was at the Onion AV Club. But the guy who was writing was basically like, I realized after the first episode that I would have to treat Community like it was a brand new comedy, and he says his his personal like motto is that new comedies get seven episodes to find their rhythm you know you can't he he was like you can't judge a new girl or a happy endings or uh you know even even a great show by by its first seven episodes because they're still trying to find their feet and stuff and he's like i have to treat community like it's a new show and on that level the first episode he he also agreed was like worrisome in the second level and the second episode was better i think that's pretty smart i think that people don't really appreciate on a show like this just how disruptive it can be to have someone like that 
leave who who wields such power over everything yeah and i think about the west wing which is at least somewhat analogous um and oh, that yeah. whole season, season five was, that whole season was was, was rough a mess and after never Sorkin left never really recovered to where um to where it had been before so i think the second episode the paranormal parentage the halloween episode was a good sign even if um I also think that it was probably the worst Halloween episode community has ever done, which is not a great, you know, it, it doesn't help that they've had really strong Halloween episodes. There was the one with the poisoned, like, taco meat. The poisoned taco meat was really good. And there was the, the one. Uh, like, yeah. the alien suit or robot thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, yeah. There's the one where Abed was Batman. And they they have the like Dia de los Muertos party that was back in season one. Um, oh yeah, and, and then, then was it uh, like the 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 short stories thing? Oh yeah, obviously that one is incredible. The like short story that was you know it was like it, all of them try to come up with horror movies and each of their horror movies is you know representative of their of their personalities in some way and I think that's a fantastic episode. Um. Yeah, that's right. Britta's trying to figure out which one of them is a psychopath. Right. Um. um but I, actually, I really liked this Halloween episode. Um, there are certainly missteps. Mm-hmm. But even their missteps, like I think one of the the biggest problems I had with it was how poorly done the Jeff and Britta plot line, plot line was. Jeff and Britta. Yeah. Mm. Talking Cause, about because um, I found the I have found the Jeff and Annie stuff in these first two episodes to be really baffling. Also, um, where oh. uh, I, I just can't really figure out they, they're like kind of like flirty or like she's like obsessed with him again, like they like yeah. she used to be. But I thought I thought she'd moved past that already. Um, um but to be fair, in the second one, except for uh, like the the opener mm-hmm. they they aren't together that much That's and true. i forgive it because i thought the uh the ring girl joke was pretty funny yeah especially since since then the dean does show up just as the correct kind of ring girl which is pretty hilarious yeah um no you you're right and and i also do quite like uh Britta and Troy's nascent relationship and the rifts it's causing with Abed i think they're moving that forward pretty well Especially compared to everyone else's plot lines, which have kind of... It just seems like they've all kind of been reset, you know? Like, I don't know. I, I, I found their their treatment of Abed over these first couple episodes to be really strange. Yeah, although I think, especially in the Halloween episode, Troy came out really well. Yeah. <laughs> the sex swing jokes were re- Really funny. <laughs> Why would he have all these collars? <gasps> Secret dogs. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, all those jokes came out really well, and there really was quite a good piece of dramatic acting by Joel McHale in the end of that episode too, where he's you know thinking about whether or not to call his dad on the phone. Um, right. Um. And I. I like in a way that they're exploring this plot line, but at the same time, I feel like the way they're going about it just seems really clumsy. and The Jeff's dad thing? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of agree. 
But, like, but you know, if they, they got to have drama somewhere, and for a while, for a couple seasons there, it was like Shirley and her ex-husband, slash now, I guess, current husband again. Um, and, like, that's kind of over, and for a while it was, you know... I just feel like this is for a while it was like maybe Chase uh, uh, Chase uh, Pierce is like having a drug induced downward spiral and then thankfully they pulled out of that one because that started to get real old yeah um, by the end so I guess now they've moved on to to Jeff and his dad as being the dramatic hook and, and I'm fine with that um, the other thing that I realized when I was thinking back about and watching back some older episodes of Community is that the the um, quality of community has always been wildly variable and more so than any other show that I can think of. They've gone back and forth between great, amazing episodes and abysmally bad episodes um, with like a weird, uh, a weird regularity. So, uh, maybe this first episode is not the establishment of a pattern. Maybe it's just continuing their occasional uh, penchant for for uh, throwing in a really really bad episode every once in a while. Um, see, I see, I'm just having a problem re- remembering stuff that happened in the first episode uh, of this season. Like uh, nothing, it- just really sticking there. Abed is worried that they're gonna leave school soon. So yeah, I mean, I remember, soul. I remember the the overarching plot points. I just feel like none of the the jokes yeah. stuck. I thought his Muppet Babies joke was pretty funny um, because yeah. I remember when it was like there were a couple shows that had like you know spinoffs where it was them as babies, and that was always kind of odd and hilarious. Um, yeah, it really it really but wasn't. Like the the Halloween one, like I feel like there were just so many callbacks that I I instantly got that I I loved um when Pierce said ghosts can't go through doors. They're not fire. <laughs> Which is a callback to like fire can't go through doors. It's not ghosts, right? From it's from some right. other episode. Um, when Chang took over the school. Yeah. Yeah. And see, it makes total sense to me that that episode is written by Megan Gantz. Um, and the first one was not, the first one was written by a first time, uh, not a first time writer. I guess he wrote some other episodes, but yeah, I'm not sure yeah, who yeah. Andy Bobro is, but, um, uh, I think the worst episode of community that I've ever seen is the one where, uh, Troy and Abed get that friend who turns out to be like a Serbian war criminal or something. Oh, I vaguely remember that one. Like, they become really good friends with this guy who they play video games with, who's really good at video games. And then, um, like, uh, Britta gets to know this guy and realizes that he's actually, like, a war criminal. Ah, Custody Law and Eastern European Diplomacy, Mm. which is uh, Season 2, Episode 18, also written by Andy Bobrow. So maybe I just don't like this particular community writer. Um, Rough. But uh, I don't know. I'm interested to see where they go from here. I'm interested to see if it, if this season of the show like hues closer to their more calmer, dramatic stuff that they were mostly doing back in the first couple of seasons or whether it's wild, experimental, all kinds of crazy... Uh, crazy uh, experimental stuff like 
uh, Remedial Chaos Theory, the one with all the timelines and stuff like that. Um, and I think the show could actually be good either way. I just wonder, you know, it, it's also possible that it could go either way and be really bad. It it all kind of comes down to the quality of the writing and, and how well they can sustain that delicate balance that they were able to for the first three seasons. And I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if um, they're going to be hampered at least... Oh, that's right. If, at least in part by uh, a cut budget. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like NBC is really scaling back. That they're just keeping it on there to keep the syndication numbers up. Yeah, and by the time this episode... By the time this season ends, they'll be at 84 episodes. So that's only yeah. four away from that mythical 88 number. Though I don't know where that number comes from. Or well, much... it used to be a hundred because that's a nice round number. And then just gets yeah. pared down a little bit every time. In, in the kind but of, I mean, in the, in uh, the, Comedy the... Central's already picked up uh, syndication rights. Also, in the Netflix Hulu age, when people can stream whole seasons of it, and NBC can get you know payments for that basically forever, I really wonder how much that arbitrary line really matters. You know. Uh, uh, Arrested Development didn't come anywhere near 88 episodes, but I bet that uh, Fox has made more money off people streaming that from Netflix than they have a bunch of series that they bumped up to random syndication levels so they could run on TBS or something. So I wonder if we're going to see that number become increasingly more irrelevant or whether people are just kind of clinging to it because 88's like the conventional wisdom. Well, I mean, you still need a certain amount just to put out there even on things like Hulu and Netflix. Yeah, that's true. Um, and four seasons seems like a good solid amount. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's it's also interesting to me because like, I, I wonder sometimes whether the mythology of these shows is caused by their abrupt ending. It's like I wrote this blog post on my blog like a year and a half ago where I was wondering about 30 Rock. And I was like, if 30 Rock had been cancelled after its third season like Arrested Development was, just like abruptly canceled, all the fans left in disarray, hearts broken, stuff like that. Would it be like as beloved as Arrested Development is today? And like that was back in a time when 30 Rock was kind of... uh, Starting to slump a little? Starting to slump a little, and it turns out that by the end, actually I think that when it did eventually go off the air, there was quite an outpouring of love for it that we talked about the last episode. Um... But I do wonder the extent to which people love these things because they got cut short or, or whether, you know, they didn't have time to get bad. Um, oh, I mean, certainly. And, and so I, I wonder, you know, would Like, it, would we it went happen? through Firefly, and there are some really horrible episodes in there. <laughs> True. And, <laughs> like, you know, we, we idol at least I idolized that show. Yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, it, it, when we look back on Community after it airs and everything's said and done, you know, is it is it really a triumph that they managed to get it back on the air for this fourth season? Or will it be like, oh my god, you have to watch Community. It's one of the funniest TV shows of all time. But, you know, don't really bother after season three. Like, you can watch it if you, if you want to, but it's not important. Which is kind of the way I feel about The West Wing. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it may be. It may end up being like kind of a weird, like what do you call that? Um, what kind of victory is it when you when Hall it's actually defeat? 
No, it's like a term uh, for it when it's actually defeat. Pyrrhic victory. Mm. Right? Yeah. Where the the toll that it takes on you. Yeah, exactly. Yes, a Pyrrhic victory. I would say that might happen uh, if there's a season five. Mm-hmm. I think there's a decent chance that with it picked up uh, with um, NBC's like floundering schedule, especially with the big gaps of uh, The Office and 30 Rock gone. Um, and with it being with uh, Community being picked up by Comedy Central this fall, I wouldn't be surprised if they put out another season mm-hmm. at minimal cost, and I think that's where we might see things start to fall apart, especially with Megan Gans now gone. Yeah. And with Pierce gone, uh, Chevy Chase gone. Hmm. Like, so what? what's going to be left? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's possible that it comes out of this a totally different kind of also wonderful show that, you know, we all love and and this is just a bump in the road, but... You're right. I mean... I don't know. It's, it, neither of these first two episodes, even though Paranormal Parentage was quite good, neither of them made me feel awesome about the remaining 11 episodes in this season. And, and so I guess we'll have to kind of see whether it's something that I continue to be excited about or something that I eventually just kind of, uh, you know, let fade into the distance and forget ever happened. I'm still optimistic. <laughs> you sound more optimistic than I am. Maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. I'm interested. I mean, the, the next episode airs tomorrow night, so by the time we get this podcast out the door, we'll probably already know what the third episode is like, and maybe it's going to be brilliant and amazing, and everyone's going to be talking about how there's no slump at all, communities back to form, Dan Harmon had no effect on the show whatsoever. But uh, Oh, actually, what I'm I'm really worried about it's just coming back to me now. Oh, there's another thing I want to talk about. It's just coming back to me now. Is I'm really worried about how what they're going to do with Chang. I did oh, not like yeah. the end of the premiere, how they set Chang back up. That uh, doesn't sit well. Also, what I wanted to point out, someone on online uh, mentioned, like if you look at, there's a scene that's shot... Um, in in the first episode this season of them uh overhead all around like the table or the like two tables and has all of the the balls that Jeff has won yeah like it looks like the balls were just like digitally added in and really poorly <laughs> I'll have to go back and look at that uh let me yeah let me see if I can bring up a picture is like they like forgot to uh is like, oh crap! We forgot to put those oh, there. On I don't the think table. we can reshoot this. So, uh, <laughs> open up MS Paint and draw in a couple of red circles. <laughs> Look how bad that looks. <laughs> it looks so bad that like the gradient and such makes it actually look like they're sunken into the table. Like there's like five large dimples in the table in front of them. I. <sighs> I don't know who they had do. Oh my god! <laughs> this shot probably only lasts like one second, but like one person was watching it. And was like, "What the hell is that?" So, we have some uh, breaking news that we could discuss if we want to. 
Breaking um, news. Because we just finished kind of checking out the uh, seemingly never-ending Sony PS4 announcement event. Um, where they announced a new controller, they announced a new uh, unit, and they talked a, a little bit about new stuff that they're going to have, like cloud streaming of, of games so that you can buy games in the cloud and then play them while they're downloading and stuff like that. Um, There's a big push for social media integration again, Yeah, obviously. Yeah. What did you think of this whole event? Were, were you, I'm, I'm a little underwhelmed. I'm going to say that. I'm a little underwhelmed. Um, there, I mean, there are definitely aspects that I, I think are good signs. Um, the fact that the console hardware does look like it's going to be, you know, pretty powerful, Mm -hmm. which especially after what, eight years, when did the PS3 come out? It's been a while. It's been a long time. I think it's been at Um, least eight years. The the PlayStation 3 is getting a little long in the tooth. Um, and so the fact that they're kind of not cutting corners um, on that front, I think, is a good sign. Uh, the the speculated price points of 429 and 529 for the two initial models. And, and I mean, this, this is not com- confirmed at all. This is, um, you know speculated sources it's it seems ridiculously high is that's that's pretty comparable to the ps3's price when it came out though right it is but the ps3 didn't sell very well when it first came out that's true part of that is that and part of that i think was uh the limited launch titles with it um i do know that there was a bigger push at this conference to show um all the the developer tools they were, there was Set a up. huge focus on developers at this event. They kept talking about the developer community and how much they love it and they want to foster it and stuff like that. So that that's reassuring. Um, but I, I just can't shake that. The Wii U is at $350. Um, and so like if, the, if like you're going to buy a console or if you're buying a console for a kid and it's 100 to $200 more expensive... Like, I think that's a big uh, problem that Sony's going to have to try and overcome. So we'll see if uh, these predictions are correct. It's such a weird time for console makers, because I was thinking about this recently, because I, I was thinking about replacing or, or upgrading my console uh, uh, toolkit. Right now I have a, a very aged Wii from, I think, 2006. And then I have an aging Xbox 360 that I purchased in 2009, but it was refurb at that point, so I think its manufacture date was probably 2007, 2008. Um, it's of that vintage. It's not like the skinny one, and it, you know, it's of the generation that still has problems with the Red Ring of Death, although I thankfully haven't experienced that yet. Um, but I was looking around at the at the landscape and it was like well what what should i really buy like a ps3 everyone even knew even going back a couple months that a ps4 announcement was uh you know upcoming very soon um uh, xbox is uh, microsoft is expected to announce a new xbox this year uh then valve is thinking about coming out with this steam box that is basically just a linux computer that you hook up to your 
um, up to your TV and um, I don't know. It, it's just a it's just a weird time. Oh, and then the Wii U, which wasn't out when I started thinking about this, but came out kind of while I was thinking about it. Um, to pretty dismal sales numbers. We just learned like a day or two ago that the Wii U has sold significantly under projections, like maybe half of projections. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think this is a really tough business to be in, and I um, the the console, that whole generation of consoles, except for the Wii, which Nintendo always made sure that they made a profit on every Wii sold, which I think was really smart. Um but the Xbox division lost Microsoft a ton of money. And I don't think anybody really knows, but um, it it's not at all clear that they recouped that in licensing fees over the lifetime of the product, which is kind of scary when you think about it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, they had always tried to use the Xbox itself as a loss leader, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I can't... Yeah. Um, and so will that strategy work again? Can they sell an Xbox in 2013 at a loss and make the money up on licensing fees on the games? Like, I have really serious doubts about that. We'll see. And I didn't see anything in this announcement that made me think, like, oh, Sony just changed the game. I mean, the controller is basically the same controller as it's always been. Uh, You know, it, it... it has a touchscreen on it, which is kind of cool, and I guess it'll lose some move stuff with that sensor bar that you put in front of your TV. Um, but I don't think it's not a fundamentally different control experience the way that the original Wii was. Um, they made a big deal out of the fact that you could play, you could like send any game that you were playing on your PS4 to your PlayStation Vita. Um, but that just sounds to me exactly like the. Wii U. The Wii U controller, sure. Except that the PlayStation Vita is like a $250 piece of equipment that you have to buy in addition to your PlayStation and your controllers and stuff like that. And yeah, I guess you could walk further away with your PlayStation Vita and you know play it while you're on the bus or whatever, but I, maybe I'm the odd man out here, but I never really understood the appeal of these in the first place, because in my mind there are games designed for small screens like Angry Birds, and then there are games designed for big screens like Skyrim, and I don't really have any desire to play Angry Birds on my television, and I don't have any don't? desire. To, and I don't have any desire to play Skyrim on my phone. It seems like really tiny. <laughs> so I, I don't. I, I don't know. I'm not a big handheld gamer these days, anyway. But that whole section just really baffled me because I was like, "Isn't that just what the Wii U does, but for, but using basically an additional two hundred fifty dollar add-on?" Um, I mean, I agree. But I think this is really a targeting more casual gamers, people that do play Angry Birds a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole thing, the, all the social network integration and the way that you can the same thing. share your screen with your buddies and stuff like that and have them give you advice on how to play it and stuff like that. Like, I can just see, like... Uh, oh, I did, know, I did like part- that hardcore like, gamers who like don't even want to use like walkthroughs or anything online like just recoiling at the idea that you'd ever want to ask your like gamer buddies for help on how to like open a specific door or something like that but i did i did like that other people can just jump in and play for you mm-hmm. for whatever reason like that feature seems like it has that opens up a lot of potential yeah i i think so too and i i actually i also did like um i can't find it in the notes that I've been reading, but um, 
the PS4 itself can be used as a local server mm-hmm. for gaming to reduce uh, like you know, any sort of uh, latency problems mm. you would have That's playing over a network. Because... Um, like a lot of a lot of PC games now even are requiring constant internet connection, which uh, and so when like a company's central server that you re- require to play the game goes down, you and you just can't play your game. That's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And so I mean, more and more um, things are turning to requiring constant internet connection. Yeah. And so it's I, I do appreciate that this offers a sort of local server option. I don't know, I think it's gonna look really kick ass. All of the gameplay demos and stuff that they showed off, it just looks really beautiful and it is a really significant step up from the previous PlayStation hardware, although it's still a step down from actual PC hardware, but Yeah, well yeah. At least it's closer. But I don't I, I if it, here here's what I was thinking during the announcement that I that really just killed me. If they would have released this as an iteration of the PS3, like in the same way that there was like Xbox 360 and then there was like another Xbox 360 later that was like the black model that was slimmer or whatever. Like if they would release this as an iteration of the PS3, like I would not have been surprised. It doesn't seem like a whole generation rev to me. Except oh, except I think uh, I saw that it's this is not like none of the old discs are backwards compatible with it. Yes, I I did also see that. They're going to rely on the game makers to create a version of it that you can play through the cloud using this new yeah. cloud streaming thing. Which is frustrating. I think that's actually the one good thing to come out of this whole big mess of a of an of an event. I, I think that for way too long, game makers have been or uh, console makers have been shackled to this idea that they must be backwards compatible forever. So, like I saw people complaining that the Wii U wasn't compatible with GameCube games. It's like that was twelve years ago on a totally different system. Like, why would the Wii U be compatible with GameCube games? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, there's no such compulsion in the PC world. You know, if you upgrade your operating system, you, like your shit just might not work. So it's up to you to make sure before you upgrade that, you know, your stuff's all compatible. Um, and I think it's really hampered the development of the hardware. I'm, I personally am glad that they didn't drive up the cost of the PS3, of the PS4, or the development time by going through and making sure that it would read all these PS3 games, especially since it uses a totally different, uh, a totally different processor archi- architecture. They've switched to using the x86 processor, which brings it in line more with the kind of processors that are inside personal computers. Which means that for game makers, hopefully, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, porting will be much easier between PC and PS3. So I don't know. I I I think it's I think it's probably fine. That that's a fair point, but I mean uh the Wii mm-hmm. was able to run GameCube games simply by running an emulator within the system. Yeah. Um and but then later model Wii's just took that out. Mm. And that seems like an arbitrary restriction. 
when clearly the the system was capable at one point was supported and and I I would be interested to see how hard it would be to run a PlayStation 3 emulator on on this hardware or I how mean, hard it would be to set up I mean obviously what they're hoping is that people who who make really popular games you know these big you know the EAs or uh you know the the, the big players in this arena will just be able to create the cloud based version and yeah. and it'll be fine but then they're basically double charging you for a game you already own exactly um i mean that that's clearly what they want and i mean yeah like yeah i you know i guess that's sort of fair i mean if you have a playstation 3 a game ostensibly you should still have a playstation 3 well you know it just if you um if you if you, the console makers are in the hard position of trying to be uh they're trying to plan for a system that has to last them six or eight years. So, you know, it's it's almost impossible in 2005 to come up with a game system that's going to be in any way, shape, or form impressive in 2013. And it's hard in 2013 to plan for a console that's going to be in any way, shape, or form impressive in 2020. And I think it's fine that they're not making sure that their console system that they're designed to last till 2020 is compatible with the stuff that goes all the way back to 2005. No, that's fair. Um, but I don't think that that's what their concern was. I think that their concern was cutting out uh, secondhand gaming. Yeah, you might be right. And there's been rumors that Microsoft is going to do a similar thing where they require some kind of uh, internet connection to check and make sure that you are the person who bought this game, or maybe you're just buying right. all of your games through like a online store, and there won't be any physical discs at all. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of speculation and outrage about that, but I have I found no reason for people to believe that that's true at all. Yeah, I think that's fine, and 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 then the the big elephant in the room in this. Uh, in this presentation, I think was Apple, both because the presentation was so Steve Jobsy, um, <laughs> and also because I think everyone in this arena is afraid of Apple. And uh, the only person who I've seen explicitly acknowledge it is Gabe Newell when he was talking about the Valve Box or the Steam Box, and he specifically said, "Like we're not afraid of Xbox and we're not afraid of Sony. We know that we can be cheaper than those guys. We're afraid of Apple and the Apple TV, and they're afraid that." The Apple Apple is going to open up the Apple TV to third-party developers, the way yeah. that it has with the iPhone and the iPad, and that people are going to be able to make games that use either a dedicated controller or that use your iPhones as controllers um, for the games. And I think that's a really valid fear because the Apple TV is ninety-nine bucks. Um, it doesn't have to. It can capture that consumer gaming market really well, and they won't ever have a second-hand game market because that's not the way Apple's app stores work. Apple's app stores are, you know, high it's all volume. Digital. It's all tied to high volume, low price, all digital. So yeah, I think that the reason why these guys are suddenly looking to cut the secondhand game out of the market, like yeah, sure, they've all hated the secondhand market forever. But they've all also been equally affected by the second-hand market forever. But they're looking at having uh, at least one with the Steam Box and perhaps two with the, uh, an Apple, a, a gaming-enabled Apple TV. Um, competitors for whom that is not a factor at all and, and who will make money off of every single person who wants to play a game on their systems. And I think that scares the crap out of these guys. Definitely. 
uh, w- which also would be awesome. You know, I have an Apple TV, so obviously I have a vested interest in Apple possibly opening up the, the Apple TV to outside developers. But I do think that would be a, a really cool gameplay mechanism, and they would be the only ones if they did decide to go with a with using an iPhone or something like it as a controller. They would be the only ones with an all touchpad controller, which would be really interesting. Um, I don't really see what the touchpad on this new Sony controller is good for, but maybe it, it has uses that I'm not appreciating. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I I didn't get to see a lot of gameplay with it, so yeah, I just saw the uh, leaked, the yeah. early leaked uh, images of it. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's I think it's gonna be very interesting. Um, and and, and Sony didn't announce anything today that I think totally changes the landscape. But I will be really fascinated to see how the other makers in this space either meet or don't meet those expectations going forward. One thing that does really baffle me is if Xbox and PlayStation are planning on having digital uh, marketplaces for their games. Oh, Xbox already does have a digital marketplace for their games. Wait, um, so does PlayStation. What? Oh, you're right. If they're planning on making those a centerpiece going forward, I wonder if they're going to relax how actively developer-hostile those platforms are. It's like, you want to make a an app for an iPhone or iPad you gotta pay $4.99 to get the developer tools and then if you want to distribute it in the app store after you've built it you have to pay 100 bucks to be a member of the developer program so your total cost your total like fixed cost of the game development or app development is $105 and then there's obviously like your time and sunk costs and computers and stuff like that but um, the only costs that are like dictated by Apple is 105 bucks. It's like even if you only want to distribute your game digitally, it's like $10,000 to join the Xbox developer program. Oh, yeah. It it's horrible too. Um whatever you have out there like if you want to there's a problem with whatever you released, mm-hmm. like it costs you tons of money to be able to distribute a patch. Mhm. I remember your game. I remember um when watching indie movie the game and just I'm uh, I'm indie game the movie uh, and just being absolutely astonished at the hoops that these guys had to go through to get their to get their games out there into the world and how uh, how absolutely um, completely Microsoft and Sony controlled these these uh, avenues and I don't really understand that I mean do they really think that if they said hey anybody in the world you can make an Xbox game for free that that would be a bad thing for their platform I think that there are tons of game developers out there who would leap at the chance and who would earn them a lot of money I don't I don't really understand the rationale there it's not like they're making money off of those $10,000 developer contracts um well I think they are well um I mean, you know I, I'm sure I'm sure they are but there's probably not enough developers for those platforms at the moment to make that a major source of income, whereas if they opened it up to you know how many how many people develop for the for the iOS app store it's like hundreds of thousands even just oh, in yeah, games definitely um, so I'll be interested to see if they relax that, especially if Apple moves into this space and basically says anybody can make a game for the apple t v I don't know maybe that's not Apple's plan at all maybe they're you know, maybe everyone thinks there's an elephant in the room, but everyone's just too afraid to turn around, and there's no, there's no elephant, and Apple doesn't want to be a, a game console maker at all. But 
if they are, then I think the rest of these guys should be scared. I did think a, I think a really cool thing that they announced that they kind of glossed over during the PlayStation uh, PlayStation announcement, but that would be a huge improvement on my Xbox, is the, the it has an instant on-off and autosave. So oh. or like more like a suspend resume, I guess, than an actual on off. But so you're you're playing and you decide you want to go to bed, instead of having to power the whole thing down and make sure you've saved, and then the next day wait through like a million loading screens while it figures out where you were and what you were doing. Like it's just like when you pick up and turn off your computer from sleep, it's just like whoop and brings you right back to where you were. That is nice. Yeah, that's actually gonna be super nice. Alright, so should we kinda of talk about this new thing that we're doing? Since we're done with Pixar um, and stuff like that, yeah, I'm excited for it. Okay, so uh, I've been calling this in my mind the pop cultural osmosis film series, um, and what it essentially is, we're just choosing a, a genre of film to talk about, uh, and we're going to even say a genre. Yeah, like a, just a category, a, a, some sort of unifying theme. Exactly, exactly, some sort of unifying theme, and we're going to talk about it for a couple of episodes, probably a shorter run of episodes, probably each time than the Pixar and Firefly series were, which was 13 episodes apiece. That got a little long by the end, so uh, we figure 6 to 8 is a good range to to shoot for with these. Um, And what we're doing here is Ryan and I sit down and we've come up with a list of of films in in this particular genre or category that we think are the most important uh, or influential in the development of, of that particular uh, category and and then we're kind of throwing it out to our listeners for the last two and saying, what films do you have in this category that are your favorite that you want us to talk about? Maybe that are your least favorite and you want us to talk about. Um, so we figure we'll do six that we think are important or influential, and then and then two that our listeners really want us to talk about. So um, our first category that we picked is time travel movies. This is a a genre with a lot of depth uh, and a lot of a lot of films. So we thought coming up with a list of six that that were important or influential was going to be pretty tough. But we actually uh, had a pretty easy time of it when we compared our lists. We were ninety. I was surprised identical. at how much we overlapped. Yeah. <laughs> well, and maybe that's just because there are some uh, some true heavyweights in in this uh, in this particular genre that that uh, you know we we uh we knew we had to pick um should we talk about what those films are and then we'll talk about the film that we watched for this week uh sure okay let me actually pull up the list here because okay so the full list is uh and we're going to, we're just going in chronological order and we've picked six of what we think are the most influential um so first we have uh the terminator which we'll be talking about this 81, week. Which we'll be talking about this week. Uh, we have Back to the Future, Groundhog Day, and then we have Planet of the Apes, which is out of place chronologically, but we didn't want to watch it first, so we're going to watch the 1968 and the 2001 versions and talk about them at the same time. So it, it kind of slides in, in in the 2001 time slot. Mm-hmm. Um, Donnie Darko and Primer. So those are our six films, Terminator, Back to the Future, Groundhog Day, Planet of the Apes, Donnie Darko, and Primer, that we'll be talking about over the next six episodes. And then we'd like to get two additional Yeah, uh, if you guys films. want us to talk about, if you feel that there's a movie that should be on this list, feel free to send us a tweet or send us a message on Facebook or uh, you can uh, reply back on through the Tumblr. Uh, Tumblr, I guess. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, we, I should emphasize that, uh, you know, our picks were meant to be influential, so we didn't just talk about all of our own favorite movies. Uh, your picks do not have to be, so you can suggest literally... Yeah, we would love to hear uh, your favorites. Ones, so. Um, so today, this week, we're talking about Terminator, uh, which well, actually, is... A, um, and actually, I just also want to mention, uh, going forward, once we're finished with this theme, we would also like to hear if you had any ideas for any sorts of genre or unifying theme for movies. So it could mm-hmm. be like movies from your favorite director or movies starring your favorite actor. You know? Yeah. Or, you know, uh, zombie movies or anything, as long as it's not too broad or too specific. So yeah. Just... Uh, Give us some ideas, and we'll we'll definitely take a look at them. Bruce Willis movies—that's a pretty good genre. Uh, M Night Shyamalan movies starring Bruce Willis—that's too specific. There's only only really two of those, so <laughs> um, that's that's kind of the the needle we're looking to thread. Um, so let's talk about the Terminator. Uh, it's interesting to me because we chose Terminator because I do think it is actually more important of a movie in terms of film history than Terminator 2, even though Terminator 2 is vastly more, uh, uh, referenced. It's, it's much, it was a bigger box office hit and stuff like that. Um, but I was really excited to go back and watch the original Terminator because, uh, it had been a while since I'd seen it and I've definitely seen it way fewer times than, than Terminator 2. Yeah, and Um, I think Terminator um, standing alone outside of Terminator 2 and the rest of the franchise uh, is a more cohesive uh, or yeah uh, movie that follows a set uh, of rules for time travel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as the franchise went on you kind of see things fall apart and become inconsistent I think that's very true. Um, and, you know, it, it's weird to us because when we went back and we looked at uh, time travel movies, it's a relatively recent subgenre. I was look, I was expecting to find a lot of movies, like sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s and stuff like that, um, but there really wasn't very much except for, like, The Time Machine, which we decided not to watch because... We didn't feel like watching something that old, and it didn't seem to be that influential in its own right. There really wasn't much until Planet of the Apes, and then really not much between that and Terminator, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, and so I think that this movie, just in the in the mechanics of how its time travel work, it, it sets up a lot that other films would just be able to reference as kind of a shorthand, uh, but which this movie feels like it has to go through in very fine detail. So it has to show you, you know, the characters have to explain how their actions affect the future and things like parallel universes and it ends up that, you know, Kyle Reese is actually John Connor's father and stuff like that. But, um, like, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it was very fascinating to me that they managed to weave that in there in a way where you're never thinking too hard about it. And I suspect this is going to be a theme in some of the better time travel movies that we watch where at some point they just kind of hand wave away the uh the the paradox you know they're just like oh we can't think too hard about this uh at one point when they're asking a bunch of questions to kyle reese about how the time travel actually work he's just like ah i don't know the tech stuff um and that really reminded me of that line from looper where he's like ah if we want to talk about this we'll be here diagramming it out all day with napkins so i just think it's interesting that that um 
everybody likes time travel and everybody wants to see how the time travel stories work, but nobody wants to think about all the ways in which they don't work. And they're probably a lot yeah, of Well, because it's very easy to... Yeah. Yeah. But this is a great movie. I can't believe this is only James Cameron's third movie, and it's only his first movie not called Xenogenesis or Piranha 2 The Spawning. <laughs> <laughs> which I can't believe were his first two movies. Um... Uh, but this is a this is a great movie. Um, it it really kind of follows this like intense action, brief respite. Intense action, brief respite. Like it it just it, you know it it there's it, it's basically a bunch of incredibly harrowing action scenes linked together by them like huddling somewhere desperately hoping that he's not gonna find him oh wait he finds him and then it like starts again I just it just works really well the structure of the film works really well for me uh yeah I mean it's a action sci-fi movie but it it plays really strongly on elements of horror and tension I think really well yeah and I had forgotten, maybe because I'm not sure if Terminator 2 is quite this grim, I'd forgotten just how grim this movie was. Like, this is... A lot of people die in this movie. Yep. And, like, not, like, James Bond, like, exciting dying. Like, there is... This, Terminator is scary in this movie. Like, he, he kills he just... a lot of people. Um, And, uh, you know, this is... Basically, Arnold Schwarzenegger's first big... Is this before or after Conan the Barbarian? I think it's after, actually. This is after Conan the Barbarian. Um, but um, this, is a, this is a great turn by him. Like He he is very good at this whole kind of uh, implacable killing machine. Um, and, you know, I think there's a reason why lines from this movie, like, I'll be back, became so famous. Um, uh there's another interesting element to this movie that I suspect we'll also talk about in a couple of our other time travel films, which is that it's a time travel story in which people from the future come back to the present, but the present is also now in our past. So mm, yeah. it kind of it, it, it's weird to me because it almost kind of seems like a period piece like a period film set in 1982 at the moment. So like the world of 1982 that these people are walking around in is totally different from our world today and in ways that I think are really fascinating. Um, At one point they're just like breaking into cars by like punching the windows and getting in and like no car alarms are going off. And I was like, that's weird. No car alarms are going off. And then I was like, I have no idea when car alarms started being standard on automobiles, but apparently it was after 1981 because none of these people had car alarms. Um, it's crazy. Um, it looks so dated. Um, the, just the style of the of contemporary times mm-hmm. that it looks like um, House of the Devil. Oh, it does. You're right. Which it is does. Uh, a horror movie that came out last year, 2011. Mm, no, I watched it in New York with you when I was still living there. So I think it must have been in 2010 ish. Oh. 2010. Okay. But I mean, it, it was it's set in like nineteen eighty mid nineteen eighties, I think, right? Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, she still has like the the Walkman and yeah, whatever. But yeah. like, it just it gives you that old feel. Like it just feels like the eighties. Yeah, and um, the 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 fashion and everything, like Linda Hamilton's like uh, haircut and stuff like that. It just, oh like, yeah, when they're, when they're like being in the mirror before their big date or whatever. Exactly, and it just screams eighties, and it it seems affected until you realize that 
like I, I don't know, I was not alive in 1981, but maybe that's maybe it's just accurate, you know, like <laughs> it's not necessarily affected at all. Um, I don't know. I think that's really that's a really fascinating aspect of it, which is it, it's almost working as a dual on a dual level for for us, where it's like it's showing us both this interesting future world that we get to imagine, but it's also showing us this interesting past world that we get to either imagine or remember as age permits. Oh, um, what, oh what didn't help was the soundtrack with the, the super heavy synth. I have score is awesome written here in my notes because the score was awesome. I mean, it was <laughs> awesome, but like that is very much a product of the 80s. It was very evangelicy. Uh, kind of reminded me of uh, Witness in that, in that aspect. Um, but yeah, it, this, this score was very heavy-handed and very kind of like... Um, made me yeah. think of people being like, Computers! It, it, same with... I mean, there there are aspects of this that look very dated. The Terminator's kind of... Uh, the Terminator vision with like the arm stuck out in front of you. Oh yeah, the, the like the weird like almost first person shooter video game. It really looked like Goldeneye to me. Like it yeah. looked just like Goldeneye to me. Um and the stop motion in this film has also not aged particularly well. No. And um, actually I I didn't and the all of the special effects in the the uh like the future scenes I just take me out of the immersion really badly. Actually, I think that this would have been a much stronger movie if they would have just cut those future scenes entirely. I agree. Um, they're super long and boring. Maybe and maybe not the the opening one, just because it kind of gives... Some context. A certain amount of context, but certainly not the... Like, the other ones that he has um, sleeping in that car at the construction yard... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, the other really, one. Really, when I think of like the Holocaust of the machines in the future that's caused by total nuclear war, like I think that what I would come up with in my head would be way scarier than what they actually came up with in the movie, which is like a tractor running over a pile of skulls like a hundred times. Yep. Well, um, I mean, yeah, that, that's a it's an old standard, right? Yeah. Let yeah. the the audience's imagination. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't know. I think that's a, a, a pretty big misstep. Um, but I mean, it was it was the eighties. They wanted to show lasers. True. Why are lasers always like the weapon of the future? Because they're they're not bullets. There, there's something else there. It's so scary. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um. No, but this is a, this is a a great a great movie and and a. Um, it plays by the rules very well. Where um, this movie very much is a very a classic uh, predestination paradox, mm-hmm. locked timeline kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like you know, if you go back and become your own grandfather, like how did you ever exist? Well, you existed because you always went back and became your own grandfather. Like that's right. That's what happened. And it doesn't matter, you know, it, it doesn't matter that you came from the future if you still showed up there. So, you know, you just kind of arrived. Um, it doesn't really deal with the whole multiple universes thing. It doesn't really deal with um, what would happen if he failed. It was just like all of history would be totally rewritten. And I guess right. it would just cease to exist. Um, 
but they don't even have to really deal with that because and which kind of tells you I mean, it kind of tells you even early in the movie that the Terminator is not going to kill her, but you never really think the Terminator is going to kill her anyway. Well, yeah, because it's a movie. You, you, you know. Um, but, I mean, as, as the franchise went on, I think they they broke their own internal rules. I mean, the Terminator 2 was pushing it. And they brought Arnold back just because... You know, he's Arnold and they had to bring him back, but now he's a good guy, which I think is actually a pretty good twist. Um, and T2 is in many ways a, as good or better of a movie. Um, but then I don't even remember what happens in Terminator 3, but I didn't even see Terminator 4 because I heard it was awful. And uh, I never watched the Sarah, Sarah Connor Chronicles. But I just have to feel like at some point, like it's treated as a huge expense in this movie. Like not a... Not a monetary expense, but like a technological, maybe like an energy expense to send these people back. It's like hard to send these people back in time, you know? Like, I also appreciated the way that when Arnold goes back in time, he materializes like perfectly on the ground in this like crouched position. When Kyle Reese gets sent back in time, he falls from like 20 feet up in the air and lands on the ground like, ugh! Right. (laughs) It's like, of course the machines would have calculated it better than the people could. Um, He's lucky he didn't end up 10 feet under the ground. Seriously. But, uh... At the same time, like, in, I feel like in the later movies, they just got, like, they were just sending people back like candy. Uh, and that draws attention to the the true flaw of the movie, which is if they can send one guy back in time, why wouldn't they just send a lot of Terminators back in time? Um, especially once they realize that their first Terminator, like, didn't get the job done. Well, I mean, very... the first movie neatly explains that away exactly they're like we captured the pad right after they left and we and then they sent i went and back and it. they blew up the place yeah and then in later movies when they start sending like super hot babe terminators back and uh you know all kinds of people like it just it's like wait well, what happened did they yeah, just like... build another one <laughs> what, what? <laughs> so it, it kind of cheapens it i think um I liked the self-surgery on the eye. That was nice and gross. That was. Uh, I, I liked um, when like the, the landlord or whatever was like pounding on the door that <laughs> the, the Terminator <laughs> is renting. And he's like he has the list of replies. <laughs> it's like you, yes, no, <laughs> like what, like fuck you. <laughs> Like, it would take the computer that long to, like, Ah, yes, let's go with this one. Mm-hmm. This is the appropriate response. Yes. I also liked that her roommate and her roommate's boyfriend are, like, doing everything with Walkmans on. Which that was, like, they're having sex, they're, like, making dinner, they're lying in bed. It's like, people never take your Walkmans off. Yeah, that was, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> um... I did also really like uh, Lance Henriksen and the other guy. I guess his name is Paul Winfield, as the tough, like hard-bitten cops who are like trying to help her down at the police station. And um, I like them because in any other movie, those guys would be the heroes, you know? Right. Like I feel like they're just they're Danny Glover and Mel Gibson from *Lethal Weapon* four, or you know the *Lethal Weapon* series. I mean, uh, and they just like wandered into the *Terminator* movie 
in which they are hopelessly outmanned and outgunned by this remorseless killing machine, and they die as soon as he shows up. But until then, they're very swaggery and confident, and they're like, we'll get you out of this, no problem, you're at the police station now, you're safe. Like, we're going to go kill these cocksucking, serial-killing bastards, but then they just totally They just die. very unceremoniously get shot. Yeah, and you never really... You never really have any hope that they're going to be effectual at all. Because, I, I mean, he's the Terminator. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I, I just like that. I feel, I feel like they're, they wandered in from some other movie where they're the heroes, and they just, you know, unluckily ended up in this movie where they're very much not the heroes. I imagine there was a, a scene that was off camera where they're talking about how it's their last day before retirement. Exactly. And the the black guy's like, I'm too old for this shit. And Lance Henriksen's like, me too, man. Uh, oh, I also liked um, just the story that um, when Steve, when James Cameron was trying to pitch this idea to someone, he had Lance Henriksen dress up as a Terminator, just like in a giant biker suit and like wear glasses, and just mm-hmm. came into whoever's office and stood around and intimidated them for five minutes before <laughs> James Cameron showed up. <laughs> And that's why uh, they wrote in that character for Lance Henriksen. That's pretty funny. They were like, we need to put you in this movie somewhere because you were so uh, so uh, good at getting us the funding for it in the first place. Um, I, th- I didn't think there was a really interesting quote here from James Cameron in, in his Wikipedia article about Schwarzenegger. And one of the things he says is that it, the... It, the Terminator, as originally written, was supposed to be this person who could blend in anywhere. You know, they and he's like, Arnold doesn't really match with the Terminator as written in our script because you don't believe Arnold's blending in anywhere. Everywhere you go, Arnold is the most visually striking thing, like in your eye shot. And so, but um, he basically says it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not because um, if it's visually interesting, if it's cin- cinematic and visceral. Um, the beauty of movies is that they don't have to be logical, they just have to have plausibility. If there's a visceral cinematic thing happening that the audience like, they don't care if it goes against what's likely, says James Cameron. And I think that's a very interesting insight that would serve James Cameron very well for all of his future movies. Um, Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, And it is true that, uh, you know, I think in the second Terminator... um, the second Terminator, the uh, the T-1000, is kind of a very much an everyman. Like, Robert Patrick is not as striking of a person as Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Well, yeah, um, I, think, I think James Cameron said when he was making T-2 that he, he wanted, if, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was a panzer tank, he wanted someone to play the Porsche. Yeah. Yeah, and and but obviously in T two he can turn into metal, which is also visually visceral and interesting and cinematic. So it's like I don't think that Robert Patrick or for that matter Lance Henriksen would have worked very well in the role that Arnold inhabited here, where he's just a remorseless killing machine. It would have been fine, but it, you just kind of would have been like, really, this little guy is like taking all these bullets, and we're supposed to be so scared of him. I, I feel like to to get Robert Patrick to that same level of fear, they had to basically give him the ability to to turn his arms into swords yep um (laughs) there's also this very famous urban legend that or i guess it's not an urban legend because it is true uh but 
uh, they were thinking about casting O.J. Simpson for the Terminator role, but oh yeah, James when, Cameron... when they wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger to be Kyle Reese, yeah, and James Cameron was like, "Nah, nobody would believe that because O.J. Simpson's too nice." <laughs> would make this movie of a vastly weirder cultural artifact if O.J. Simpson had played the Terminator. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> like it would not be a. Uh, it would not be a, a beloved cultural icon. I think it would be like one of those things that you watch and, for historical purposes and feel kind of weird about. <laughs> like basically any other movie starring O.J. Simpson at this point. It's always weird to watch a movie in which the main character has your name. Oh, Very yeah. distracting in this movie whenever Linda Hamilton was like, Kyle! I was like, ah. <laughs> it's weird me out. Uh, anyway, Terminator. I think this is going to make a very good touchstone for us moving forward. I think that, you know, as we talk about movies that are uh, kind of do kind of more and more interesting stuff with this time travel conceit, and especially when they just start throwing it all out the window like we're going to see in things like Primer, um, I think it's good that we're starting with one that has very firm ideas about how time travel should work and plays within the rules and uh, and does it in a super entertaining and, and interesting way. I like that a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, also, like, how... This is just completely unrelated, but how likely is it, like, if you went into a gun store, the guy would give you, a, you a gun just to check it out, and then there's also a box of ammo for it right next on the counter. Not very likely. I wish he'd killed that guy also by tearing out his heart, which is how he killed the first motorcycle guy, which was intense as shit. That's a good five years before uh, Temple of Doom's heart-ripping-out sequence, and it was way more unexpected. Oh, yeah, Bill Paxton was one of those punks. Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't that weird? That's bizarre. I didn't realize that until I I looked it up later. You know, the future world that uh, is in Terminator, it it obviously does not look very appealing, what with the uh, tractoring of all the skulls and such. (laughs) Um, But honestly, the present world of Terminator doesn't look that appealing either. It makes me wonder if 1980s Los Angeles was just a festering hellhole with, like, violent punks and, you know, homeless people and, like, it's just, like, I don't know, it just everywhere they went in that movie was just, like, scary and dark. I mean, I bet parts of L.A. were. Yeah. Anyway, um, people should definitely send in suggestions for time travel movies. There's a great list on Wikipedia that we'll put in the show notes where you can look at all of them so you can see all the ones that you've forgotten. Um, and basically we'll take, I, I guess, the are we just going to choose them arbitrarily from what people send in or are we going to choose the one that has the most votes or how are we going to do this? Yeah, I think some combination of what comes out to be the most popular and what we consider and what we want to, what we think might be good to watch. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good so, idea. I, th- I mean, we reserve the right to refuse things I guess but we'll definitely go along with popular opinion because yeah. we want to encourage your feedback exactly we don't want to like not you know talk about whatever these people send in um, so yeah people should definitely should definitely send us stuff and next week we will be talking next week next whenever uh, we will be talking about uh, back, back to, to the, the future. future so everyone should definitely watch that movie before the next episode if they haven't seen it already or if they want to have a refresher 
and it's been a very long time since I've seen it, so even though I have pretty strong memories of it, I'm excited to watch it again, too. Me, too. cupcakes how many cupcakes equal one boston cream pie uh maybe six you can almost think of them like arranged in a circle i know but i'm i i am not totally on board with the whole cupcake thing like actually that's a lie if there are cupcakes in front of me i will absolutely eat many cupcakes but for some reason i feel like cupcakes are not as delicious as everyone else seems to pretend they are i have no problem with cupcakes um because they are delicious, uh, they you, they might be overhyped because of uh, I would assume Sex in the City and then Cupcake Wars on Food Network or something. I don't know. Yeah, you do see them disproportionately portrayed in. Uh, pop culture like if there was going to be a bunch of stores of something that opened up like specialty stores just for this thing i would so much rather there be tons of specialty cookie stores than tons of specialty uh uh uh, cupcake stores but for some reason my town has like three specialty cupcake stores and no specialty cookie stores at all oh this is weird julia likes cookies so much more than pie I would also say that I like cookies way more than pie, but just oh, not man. these cookies. No. Pie is amazing. Pie is pretty damn good. Um, I would eat. And see, I like how she says she would eat thirteen cookies in one day, but she'd never eat an entire pie. But I, I, I would probably, I would say at least it's way more likely I would eat thirteen cookies than a whole pie. I would not rule out me eating a whole pie in, a, in one day. Mm-hmm. But I think that just goes to show um, just th- that exchange rate, that it should be much higher. Like, if I were to eat a whole pie, it should be way more cookies, the equivalent. I have, like, a, I have a huge cookie compulsive eating problem. Like, if there are cookies, I am just basically continuously eating them until they disappear. Um, I like to think I have self-control um, I was that kid that stretched out their Halloween candy way way out into like March, spring, whatever I have no self-control when it comes to cookies to this day what basically ends up happening when I bake cookies at home which for some stupid reason I do on a fairly regular basis is that I, like, make a bunch of cookies, and then I eat a bunch right when they come out, and then I'm like, oh, I'm so full, I shouldn't eat more cookies. And then I put them all in a Ziploc bag and think I'll eat them slowly over the period of the next couple days. And then I eat a bunch every time I want to have some until I've got, like, six left, and then I'm like, you know what, I'm going to eat these all eventually anyway. I might as well just get it over with. 
So then I don't have to feel bad about eating so many cookies. So then I just stuff my face with cookies. And then I have no more cookies. And I'm like, oh, thank God those are gone. Oh, my stomach. Wow. Yeah, so you're like Alex. Yeah. 